The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, this morning ends our final uh, Sunday in the Advent season. Now, some of you may be thinking as I say that, wait a minute, Christmas was last week. Why are we saying Advent ends today? Well, during the Advent season, yes, we do celebrate the first Advent, the first coming of Jesus. But it is good for us not only to celebrate Jesus' first coming, but it is good for us to be reminded of and to, to anticipate the second Advent of Jesus, the second coming of our Lord. And so we looked at the results of what happened in Jesus' first coming last week, and today we're going to look at what it results from Jesus' second coming, his second Advent. And as I said earlier, as we think about 2023 and, and what may transpire, what may take place for us, and as we plan and as we set our resolutions uh, this next year, I hope and I pray that at the top of your resolution list is to think often and to, and to live in light of eternity, to plan and to anticipate what awaits us in the new creation, our future reality. Unfortunately, today, I think maybe because we, we are inundated often with the things of this world, we don't think often and frequently of heaven. John MacArthur, he put it this way. He said, caught up in our society's mad rush for instant gratification, material comfort, and narcissistic indulgence, the church has become worldly. Nothing more graphically demonstrates that worldliness than the current lack of interest in heaven. And so this morning, I want to introduce our time by asking you this question. What, what comes to your mind when you think about heaven? The, the topic of heaven, it's a fascinating one, isn't it? it, it it's fascinating for both the Christian and the non-Christian alike. Numerous books have been written about heaven. Some helpful and, and many maybe not so helpful. But, but what comes to your mind when you think about heaven? Maybe a better question would be, if we have never been to heaven, how can we know what it's like? Do we take the word of the select few who supposedly won that lottery ticket and snuck their way into heaven? Uh, do we believe the, the heaven account of, of a four-year-old supposedly experienced what he experienced on the operating table? Or should we learn about heaven from, from the guy who went there for 90 minutes and then came back? And I would just ask him, if you were there for 90 minutes, why not just stay the whole time, right? Um, but, but, but do we just fire up all or do we just fire up all of our creative juices and channel our fanciful, wishful thoughts to imagine a paradise to our own liking? As Christians, how are we to think about heaven? Are we just left to bank all of our future hope on mere speculation? It's either our own speculation or that of others. How can we know what heaven is like? Well, this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. And this morning, I want to show you that the future hope of every Christian, your future hope, it's, it's not based upon speculation, but it's based upon substance. And my desire is that after this sermon, you wouldn't be led astray by the trickery of others, but that you would be led by the truth of God's word. This morning, we will look at the biblical explanation of heaven. This is my outline, the biblical explanation of heaven. 
our existence in heaven, our experience of heaven, our exhortation from heaven, and then finally, our warning from heaven. And my prayer is that this morning that you will see how our triune God is going to make all things new and that your souls would be enlivened by your future reality that awaits you. And then as a result, that you would leave this place this morning with a deeper longing for heaven and a greater commitment to live in light of heaven. With that being said, let's go ahead and read. We're going to read Revelation 21, and we're going to skip a little bit. And and just so you know, just to, to preface this sermon this morning, uh, every most most every sermon that you that I will preach will be expository in nature. So we will look at a text and what does the text say? And we get our meaning from the text. And uh, and now the meaning of the text will be the meaning of my sermon this morning. It's going to be a little bit more topical in nature when we think about heaven. It will still be tied to the Bible, but it will be a little bit more topical in nature. With that being said, let, let's read Revelation 21 and then a part of 22 as well. The Apostle John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place. That that word dwelling place literally means the tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of water. The, of life without payment to the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And we'll skip to, to verse 22 here. John continues and he says, I saw no temple in the city, For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then I then the angel showed me the river of the water of life brought as crisp, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Church, I believe the the five most glorious words in all the Bible. They will see his face. 
and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, he has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And Jesus says this. He says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then fast forward to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray real quick. Father, I pray that in in my inability to communicate the glories of heaven, this morning I pray that your grace would be sufficient and that your power would be made perfect in my weakness. I pray that you would come now and that, that you would speak, Holy Spirit, through your word into the hearts of the people here. And that you would encourage our hearts, that you would challenge us, and that where needed, that you would warn us for our ultimate good. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, first, we see this morning a biblical explanation of heaven. Now, I know many people today and many Christians, even within the church, uh, maybe you imagine that heaven will be a place where we will magically float alongside the angels in the clouds as we strum melodically on our very own personal harps. And I know there's a popular song. um, uh, Oh, goodness, I'm I'm blanking on it. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. There's a popular song, uh, but it talks about how we, 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 with wings we will fly. And, uh, and, and that could be uh, nothing further from the truth. Um, many people also think of a place, a heaven as a place absent of any physical existence. No, no physical heaven, no physical earth, no physical bodies. Now, now, to be sure, if we die before Jesus comes back again, we will enter into a place that is called the intermediate state where we will be united with Christ before receiving our resurrected bodies. But while a disembodied spirit-only existence detached from any real physical interaction, it fits within Greek philosophy and Eastern mysticism, it has no place. And it has, in that description, is nothing found in Scripture. What the Bible tells us what heaven will be like, it is a real place, a new heaven and a new earth. Look at me at verse one in chapter 21, where John says this, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. When Jesus comes back to this earth and after he destroys Satan, sin and death, and after the living and the dead are judged, our God will make for us an utterly new transformed physical earth. This is the new heaven and the new earth that Isaiah prophesies about in Isaiah 65 and 66 when he writes this before. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make will remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain. And this is the new heaven and the new earth that Peter talks about in second Peter three, when he says, according to this promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now this earth that he will make for us will be just as physical and just as real to us, indeed even more real to us than this very earth that we are living on now. We won't be floating in the clouds. We'll be living on a new transformed 
earth. And we see in Revelation 22 that this new earth, it'll have rivers, it'll have trees. There will be a city where we will live in. It will be a real place and we will interact with it using our five perfected senses. This world that we know of, it won't be obliterated or annihilated. Rather, it will be transformed. It will be renewed. It will be remade. The new heaven, the new earth, in the new heaven, in the new earth, in the new creation, sin will be no more as well. And because sin will be no more, the Bible tells us this new earth will no longer be corrupted by the curse of sin or subjected to its decay. So just think about it with me. Think about the most glorious experience you have had in nature. Maybe, maybe it's that, that amazing sunset that you have seen that left you speechless. Maybe it's the grandeur of a mountaintop view. Maybe, maybe it's if you've been able to go on a cruise. Maybe it's the vastness of the ocean. However great these experiences are on this earth, they will be unspeakably and immeasurably greater in the new creation. Because as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, this new creation is going to be freed from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Indeed, this new creation that awaits us one day, our future hope, our inheritance, it will be Eden transformed. It will be Eden 2.0. It will be absolutely glorious. Now you might be thinking, uh, you've talked a lot about this new earth what about what about the new heaven that john talks about what is that and where will it be well when the bible speaks of heaven it refers to heaven as the dwelling place of god and look at me at verse three where does it say god will be in his new creation in the new creation where does it say it says god himself will be with them as their god where will god be where will heaven be heaven will be on earth It will be on earth for God will dwell there with his people for all eternity. So listen, heaven, our future hope, it's not some disembodied state of mind. It will be a physical place, just as real, even more real than the earth we are living on now. It will be remade. It will be renewed. It will be transformed. It will be unlike anything we have ever experienced on this earth. Verse five through verse six says this. He who sat on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And then later, verse six, he says, he said to me, it is done. Now that that phrase, it is done. I think I think John is because he is the one who penned in John chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus's statement when he said to Telestai, it is finished when his work on the cross When Jesus said that, it signified the completion of his atonement for the sins of his people. So I think now in verse 6, when when John writes that down, when he says, it is done, I think it signifies that God's work in the new creation, it will be the completion of all of his purposes in human history. Listen, all of human history pointed to that moment when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when he came to, to deal the initial and the decisive blow to sin, to Satan and death. But now all present and future human existence, it's preparing for the day of the Lord, for the second coming of Christ, when he will return to forever destroy sin, Satan and death, when, and when he will come to make all things new. There is coming a day when our God will say it is done for all things will be made new. This is the biblical explanation 
of what heaven will look like. It's not exhaustive, but, but it is a description of heaven. And secondly, I want us to see our existence in heaven. So if this is what heaven is like, what will we be like in this new heaven? Well, first, we will receive resurrected physical bodies. In John chapter 6, Jesus said this. He said, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And listen, he says this, and I will raise him up on the last day. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul helps us to understand further what these resurrected bodies will be like. And so while there will be similarities and continuity between our current bodies and our resurrection bodies, I will, get, I, will, uh, I will see you, I will know you, I will recognize you in your resurrected bodies. There will also be some transformative differences. For, for one, Paul says that the body we will receive, it will no longer be an earthly body, but a heavenly one. It will be a body that resembles the resurrected body of our Lord. And so while the disciples were able to recognize Jesus, while they were able to interact with Jesus, they were able to, to touch Jesus, they ate with Jesus. While, they, while his body, Jesus' resurrected body, contains many similarities to that of his earthly one, there were striking differences as well. And one example, which always astounded me, uh, was that on two accounts, Jesus was able to enter into a locked room without even opening the door. And so this tells me then that, that there will be some physical compositional change in our transformed resurrected bodies. What that will be, I am not quite sure. But there will be continuity, there will be similarity, but then there will also be transformation with our bodies. Paul also says that, that the bodies we will receive, not only will they be transformed, but they'll be imperishable. Paul says this, for the perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality. On this earth, and I think some of us, I, I, I'm beginning to learn this all too well to myself as well. But on this earth, every one of our bodies has a shelf life, right? But not so with our resurrected bodies. We will receive permanent, incorruptible, immutable bodies. And for, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul used the analogy of, of right now we have a tent of a body, but one day we're going to get a home. And, uh, and, and I think he's playing off of the, the tabernacle versus the temple motif in the Old Testament. You know, not only will we receive physical, transformed, resurrected bodies that will be incorruptible, immutable, and permanent, these bodies will also be free from sin, free from sorrow, free from pain, from disease, and death itself. Now, is this not a glorious truth for us to set our hopes on this morning? That one day, all of our physical ailments will be no more. Back pain will be no more. And I, I went to the gathering place with our children yesterday, and I, I maybe I was I pretended maybe I was a kid and, that, and I shouldn't have, and I was playing on, on, on a toy there, and now I'm feeling it in my back. One day, church, listen, back pain will be no more. Knee pain will be no more. No more pulling muscles or, and no more fracturing bones. And listen, cancer one day will be no more. Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease will be no more. Dementia, Alzheimer's, heart disease, diabetes, these things will all be no more one day. We, 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 we should and we rightly in our world, science is pursuing a cure for all of these diseases and we should. But listen, church, there is coming a day when all of these diseases, they will be cured. They will be cured by the coming, the second coming of our Lord when he will make all things new.
They will be no more because, listen, sin will be no more. Oh, for that day, church, when we will no longer have to live with our guard up, guarding against our own sinful tendencies and and the sins against others. There's coming a day where you will no longer have to fight and resist temptation in your flesh. You no longer have to repent and ask for forgiveness. Sin will be no more. For in this new creation, you will find and you will experience permanent and perfect rest for your souls. Rest from sin and rest in the perfect presence of God's holiness. As the hymn, Come Thou Fount says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Church, listen, there is coming a day when sin itself will be no more. So we will receive resurrected bodies. We will be freed from sin, sorrow, pain, and death itself. Thirdly, we will be exceedingly happy. It stands to reason then that if we receive physical resurrected bodies and if we're freed from sin and if God is going to make all things new, then, then he will also make anew our minds, our souls, and our spirits. This then means, church, that we will live in a state of exceeding and unending happiness. The greatest thrills, the greatest joys, the greatest pleasures experienced on this earth are but a foretaste of what you will experience in heaven for all eternity. For the happiness experienced on this earth, it's still tainted and dampened by sin. But in heaven, because sin will be no more, and because our happiness will be in perfect accord with God's glory, our happiness in heaven will far exceed any experience of happiness we could ever know or imagine on this earth. Not only will we be perfectly happy, we will also be perpetually happy. Our happiness will be inseparable to our very existence. So think about it. Those moments in your life that have given you the most joy, whether it was your wedding day, whether it was the birth of a child, whether whatever it may be, that is that pales in comparison to the unending and the perpetual happiness you will experience in heaven. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a lot about the happiness we will experience in heaven. And he said that not only will our happiness be unending, not only will it be far exceeding any happiness experienced on this earth, not only will it be perfected in its quality, but our happiness in heaven will be continually increasing in its quantity. He writes this, that their knowledge will increase to eternity. And if their knowledge increases, doubtless their holiness. For as they increase in the knowledge of God and of the works of God, the more they will see his excellency. And the more they see his excellency, the more they will love him. And the more they love God, the more they will delight in his, and, and be happy. And they will, have, they, they will have all the fullness in him. Our happiness in heaven, it will continually increase because our intimate knowledge of God will continually increase. For as we grow in our knowledge of God, the more we learn of his greatness, the more we learn of him, we will learn of his inexhaustible greatness. You know how I asked you earlier about to think about your greatest experiences to date with God's creation? Again, think about those moments of greatest joy. Those will pale in comparison to what we will have in heaven. Not only will our joy be exceedingly great, our loves will be, per- be perfected to the highest degree. For while there will be no marriage in heaven, for the parable will give way to the reality, this much is, this much is sure. I will love Emily more than I ever have on this earth. 
because my love, my capacity for love will be perfected. I will love my children more than I ever have. I will love my my friends and my family more than I ever have because our capacity for love will be perfected. And we will love God in such a way and to such a degree that we will ever wonder, church, that we ever loved him at all on this earth. Our love for God in the new heavens and the new earth will pale in comparison to what we experience now. Thirdly, we see our experiences in heaven. Well, what, if, if this is true, if, if, if we have a biblical explanation of heaven, and if we've talked about what our existence in heaven will look like, what will be the different experiences we will encounter in this new creation? Well, first, we see in our text that we will live in a city. And so if we live in a city, we'll presumably have all of the social and cultural aspects that a city, that a city affords. And so we don't have time to look at in depth at verses 9 through 21 in Revelation 21, but the Apostle John makes it abundantly clear that we will live in a city-like setting. We will know that we know that music will exist in the new creation, and, and so if music exists, it seems that other forms of art will exist as well. Art that finds its end goal not in human expression, but in the glory of God. And so we will have creation that will extol the beauty of God, but we will also have art and music and other fashions of culture to extol the beauty of our God. Secondly, we see that we will fellowship with the multi-ethnic redeemed people of God. Look at me, look with me at Revelation 21 verse 3 where it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Now that word for people, is it's actually in the plural form. It literally means that they will be his people's. And we see this further described in other parts of Revelation. In Revelation 7, where John said, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, tongue, language, and people. They stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And in Revelation 21, verse 24, in our chapter, we see that by the light of the glory of God and by the lamp of the Lamb will the nations walk. And so if you got my newsletter this past week, why did I make such a big deal about our giving to the Lottie Moon? And church, we should celebrate what God has done in us and what he will do through us through our giving to the Lottie Moon. We were able to raise an amazing $3,375 this year for the Lottie Moon. That should be celebrated and we should rejoice in God for that. But why do we make a big deal about that? Why is it my desire that global missions and the proclamation of the gospel to the unreached people groups in the world, why should that be the heartbeat of this church? Because God's people will consist of a multitude of every tribe, tongue, language, and people. Because people from these unreached people groups that we speak of, one day they're going to be your neighbors in the new creation. Listen, most of your brothers and sisters in heaven, they will not look like you. And so what a beautiful display of God's redemptive design and the power of the gospel, that the truth of the gospel, it's able to transcend culture and language and regions and all other barriers and unite a people from all kinds of backgrounds. So why, why do we strive for multi-ethnic unity in the church today? Why do we seek to proclaim the gospel to all unreached people groups? We do so because we will spend all eternity alongside one another, worshiping the lamb who was slain and risen for our salvation. We also see in in our experiences in this new creation that we will worship the lamb 
who was slain and risen. The, the center of all of our experiences in heaven will be the worship of our King. Listen, church, for all eternity, we will never tire of saying together with our brothers and sisters these words, worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you purchased a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We will never tire of worship for our King. But also, another experience in heaven is that we will be co-heirs with Christ. Not only will we experience the new creation, but we will also be co-owners of this new creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Romans 8, Paul says it this way, that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. In Luke 12, Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And in Matthew 25, Jesus said that after the judgment, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So have you ever had the thought or idea? Have you ever fantasized about, the, about winning the lottery or even being uh, an heir to a billionaire? What if, what if you're one of Elon Musk's children, right? One of his 30 children, I, I think that he has. Or what, if, or what if you were one of Bill Gates or uh, Warren Buffett's children? And you, by nothing of your own doing, but just by their passing, you got billions of dollars. Well, listen, brothers and sisters, you have been made heirs, not of a billionaire, but you have been made heirs of the living God and fellow heirs with Christ. What we will have, we do not yet know, but when we get there, we will be amazed. But all of that, all of those experiences, as great and as glorious as they will be, they pale in comparison to this final experience. That we will dwell with God. As I said before in our reading, verse 3, when it says we will dwell with God, it literally means that, that God will, when God will dwell, the dwelling place of God is with man. It literally means the tabernacle of God that that. that reminds us of that most holy place in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and in the temple, the place where, where the, the, the holy presence of God dwelled, where, where the high priest could only go in once a year. We will experience that in full every day for all eternity. Not only will we dwell with God, but we will see the face of Jesus. Revelation 22 verse 4 said this, he, they will see his face. There is coming a day. That the one we've walked by faith to follow, the one that we have, have fought against sin for, we will see with sight. And we will behold the one who our souls were created and redeemed to know. Wayne Grudem, I, I, I tried to put it better, but I couldn't. So I'm going to read what something that he wrote about that moment when we will dwell with God and see the face of Jesus. He said this. More important than all the physical beauty of the heavenly city, more important than the fellowship we will enjoy eternally with all of God's people, more important than our freedom from pain and sorrow and physical suffering, and more important than reigning over God's kingdom, more important by far than any of these will be the fact that we will be in the presence of God and enjoying unhindered fellowship with him. 
From time to time here on earth, we experience the joy of genuine worship of God. And we realize that it is our highest joy to be giving him glory. But in that city and what is to come, this joy will be multiplied many times over. And we will know the fulfillment for why we were created. Our greatest joy will be in seeing the Lord himself and being with him forever. And when we look into the face of our Lord and when he looks at, back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable. And when we gaze into the face of our Lord, we will know more fully than ever before what we read in our call to worship, that in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Before we continue to our next point, I just want to ask you, do, do you long for that day? Do you long for that day when you will see the face of your Savior? When you will be forever and unhurriedly in the unhindered presence of God? Do you long for the day when you will see the one who for your sake went through hell on the cross that he might bring you to heaven? 1 Peter 1.8 says this, that though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. But brothers and sisters, though we don't see him now, there is coming a day when we will see him. We will see the one in whom is all of our delight. Your, your longing, I am convinced that your longing for heaven, it's proportional to your love for Christ. If you love little, you'll long little. But if you love much, you will long much for heaven to see his face. There was a time when I, when Emily and I were first married. It was in the first year of our marriage, in the honeymoon stage of marriage. And uh, seven years in, still honeymoon stage. Uh, uh, so, but, uh, well, yeah. And uh, anyway, but there was a time when Emily went to go visit her sister in California for four days. And, and at that point, you know, being newly married four days, it seemed like an eternity. And, uh, and so I think I was a couple days in and we lived in a small apartment at that time. And, you know, I was trying to, okay, what do I do? Emily's not here. So I was like, well, I guess I'll clean, I'll clean the apartment and everything. And so I, uh, I, I, I cleaned the apartment and I figured, you know what, like just to show Emily how much I love her, how much I miss her, I'm going to send a sweet text and just, you know, uh, type it out, send a sweet text. And so I snapped a picture of the clean uh, apartment and I typed out a, a beautiful text message, sent it. And I'm like, oh, she is going to love that. And I, soon thereafter, I get an, an unexpected text message back my way. And it said this, I think you meant to send that to Emily. And, uh, and so I had, I had sent it to one of our friends instead of Emily on accident. And so... Uh, but, but all that's, why do I share that story? A, because I, hopefully I thought it would be a little funny for you and a little humiliating for myself. But I share that to say, our, the love that we have for our, our family members, our friends, and, and when we miss them, our, our longing for them, our love and our long for Jesus Christ should far exceed any longing and love for a human relationship on this earth. Your longing for heaven is proportionate to your love for Christ. If you love little, you'll long little. But if you love much, you will long much. Finally, our exhortation from heaven. Fourthly, our exhortation from heaven. 
I'll share just I'll share just a couple exhortations. First, I think we need to be reminded to remain firm in our suffering because your suffering is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is coming a day, as Revelation 22 says, that we will be refreshed by the waters of life. Listen, your suffering that you're going through right now, whether it's relational, whether it's financial, whether it's health related, whatever it may be, your suffering is not pointless. It is purposeful because it is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Secondly, the reality of heaven that awaits us, it reminds us to remain focused in our sanctification. Jesus said this in in Mark chapter 13. He said, concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So he encourages us he reminds us he commands us to be on guard to keep awake for you do not know the time when the time will come when he will return church when he returns may we be found faithful faithful in our sanctification and pursuing holiness thirdly may we remain faithful in our sacrificial service to jesus now i know many of you uh many of you in this room you either have entered into or will be soon entering into the retirement stage of your life. And so, church, what I'm about to say, uh, I want you to repeat it after me. What I'm about to say, it's not a rebuke in any way, but it's a loving reminder. So say it with me. It's not a rebuke in any way, but it's what? A loving reminder. Robert Murray McShane, he said this, live for eternity. A few more days and our journey is done. So I just want to ask, how do you want to spend the final season of your life before you will enter into eternity? How do you want to spend the last chapter of your life before you stand before your creator, savior, and king? Do you want to spend it ceasing from all sweat and toil as our world tries to sell you on? Or do you want to spend it in service to your king? I want to encourage you, retired members of New Life Baptist Church, don't waste your retirement. But as Jonathan Edwards said in his resolutions, I pray it would be yours to to be resolved to live with all my might while I still live. And to build upon that, may it be your resolution this year, resolved to serve my king with all my might while I still can. Your your, Your greatest days are not behind you. Your greatest days are ahead of you, both in this lifetime and then also listen for all eternity. Serve our king. I encourage you to serve our king in your retirement years. Live for eternity. A few more days and our journey is done. When we get to heaven, when we see the face of Jesus, we will not regret one sacrifice that we made for him in this lifetime. Finally, we see in our text our warning from heaven. As real and as glorious as heaven will be for the Christian, for those who have repented of their sins, trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, and for those who are submitting to his kingship and lordship in and over their lives, as great and as glorious as heaven will be for these people. Listen, friend, just as real and just as horrible will the torment and the anguish of hell be for all those who reject Jesus's salvation. Read with me chapter 21, verses 7 through 8, and then verse 27. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And and verse 27 would say this, that nothing unclean will ever enter this heavenly city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus In his ministry, he described hell as a fiery furnace where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So just as we remembered our greatest moments of joy, our our greatest encounters with creation, and how they they will compel in comparison to our experience in heaven, listen, if you reject Jesus' salvation, then your moments of deepest depression, your feelings of inner anguish and torment, your feelings of loneliness, your moments of most intense pain, They are but a drop in the bucket of what the Bible tells us hell will be like. 2 Thessalonians 3 says that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And that they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Maybe, maybe an illustration to help you understand this. Imagine you are standing in, in front of the Hoover Dam. As you are admiring the, the engineering marvel that it took to construct that and the amount of water that, that, that is held behind the Hoover Dam. Imagine as you're standing in front of it, you start to see a hairline fracture take place. And you're like, oh, that's not good. Uh, and, then, and then you start to see that hairline fracture become a larger crack, a larger crack until the Hoover Dam gave way. And imagine all of that water rushing toward you. You can try to run, but there's no hiding. You can try to escape, but there's no place to go. And yet all of a sudden, just before it reaches you, it is as if the the earth opened up, swallowed all of that water such that not one drop ever touched your skin. Listen, church, this is what Christ has done for us. And friend, if you don't yet know Jesus, this is what Jesus' work on the cross, what he did for you. God's just wrath. It is upon us for our sin. But listen, Jesus' salvation is such that he endured God's almighty wrath on the cross, that we, not one drop of it, not one touch of it, would ever come upon us. And this is freely offered to everyone in this room who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Listen, contrary to what the world thinks, the Bible is clear that your good works, it will not lead you to heaven, but it will lead us straight to hell if we're trusting in them alone. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will ever enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did, did we not preach? Did we not cast out demons in your name? We might say today, did I not counsel people through their depression and suffering? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say this, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I just want to ask each one of you in this room, do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally? Your eternity depends upon your answer to that 
question. The only way, the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus and through him alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Would you hear the warning from heaven today? And would you receive the salvation heaven freely offers to you? You can escape God's wrath through the salvation Jesus freely offers. We've seen this morning the explanation of heaven given to us by the Bible, what our existence in heaven will be like, our experiences in heaven, the exhortation that that living in light of heaven gives us, and then finally our warning from heaven. Let's, Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.